Today on the Puritan and Reformed Audiobook Podcast, I want to look at the book that is generating a great interest our day. It has become very popular, but I want to look at two things. Are the directions in there for a piece of conscience safe, or are they possibly unbalanced? Or how about the misapplication that somebody could be making of them, even if it is a solid exposition of what the Bible promises say about the forgiveness of sin and peace of conscience? And I want to do so by mostly quoting John Owen, whose works on these subjects I'm far more familiar with. For example, chapter 13, in a mortification of sin, where John Owen says, Let no man speak peace to himself before God speaks peace to him. But also his excellent exposition of Psalm 130, titled The Forgiveness of Sin, especially in verse 5. Why would God wait before he bestows it? Why not just take 1 John 1, 9 and say, here's my problem and here's a band-aid, I'll patch it, trust God to be good at his word, and then go about with a full assurance of faith. What could be the problem in that? First, allow me to quote Dana Ortland, and I'm going to be very selective of the things that I quote because I'm only reviewing it. I don't dare violate the copyright, which is another reason that I read the old authors more than the new authors anyway. I prefer those things that are in the public domain. My hobby is the audiobook narrator of the Puritan and Form works, and therefore and therefore I can't worry about if I'm breaking some kind of copyright law. But let me quote Ortland at this. He's quoting John Calvin of God's disposition and his heart language. He says, Remember when we speak of God's heart, we're speaking of the spring loaded tilt of his affections, his natural bent, the regular flow of who he is and what he does. And the divine disposition, teaches Calvin, is according to Isaiah fifty five the photonegative of our natural fallen disposition, our lethargic apprehensions of the uproarious joy of divine pardoning lower the ceiling on whom we perceive God to be. But they do not limit who God, in fact, is. God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive, so that it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we do not obtain pardon from him. Now let me quote John Owen on the forgiveness of sin, and I believe it's more helpful to get to the real problem of why we do not discover, as he says, the forgiveness of sin that is in God's promises. He seems to be in agreement with Ortland as we start out by establishing that, for a doctrinal objective discovery of its truth, God did reveal it in a word of promise or it could never have been known. In this sense, after many lesser degrees and advancements of the light of it, it was fully and gloriously brought forth by the Lord Jesus Christ in his own person, and is now revealed and preached in the gospel, and by them to whom the word of reconciliation is committed, and to declare this is a principal work of the ministers of the gospel. But it is a great work, and why is there a rareness of the understanding of the forgiveness of sin. He says, first, conscience naturally knows nothing of forgiveness. He says, the constant voice of conscience lies against this 
discovery of forgiveness of sin. Conscience of it is not seared, inexorably condemns and pronounces wrath and anger upon the soul that has a least guilt cleaving to it. Now it has this advantage, it lies close to the soul, and by importunity and loud speaking it will be heard in what it has to say. It will make the whole soul attend, or it will speak like thunder. And its constant voice is that where there is guilt, there must be judgment. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Conscience naturally knows nothing of forgiveness. Yea, it is against his very trust, work, and office to hear anything of it. If a man of courage and honesty be entrusted to keep a garrison against an enemy, let one come and tell him that there is peace made between those whom he serves and their enemies, so that he may leave his guard and set open the gates, and cease his watchfulness. How wary will he be, lest under this pretense he be betrayed? No, he says, I will keep my hold until I have express order from my superiors. Conscience is entrusted with the power of God and the soul of a sinner, with command to keep all in subjection with reference to the judgment to come. It will not betray his trust in believing every report of peace. No, but this it says, and it speaks in the name of God, guilt and punishment are inseparable twins. If the soul sin, God will judge. What, tell you me of forgiveness? I know what my commission is, and that I will abide by. You shall not bring in a superior commander, a cross principle, into my trust. For if this be so, it seems I must let go my throne. Another Lord must come in, not knowing as yet how this whole business is compounded in the blood of Christ. Now whom should a man believe, if not his own conscience? Which, as it will not flatter him, so it intends not to fright him but to speak the truth as the manner requires. Well, the first thing that John Owen seems to establish here, unless I misunderstand him, is that because conscience natural work is to accuse, it's not going to very quickly enjoy any promise of peace. The problem isn't in the promise. The problem is that the conscience by nature knows nothing of spiritual revelation. It was not part of its design. Spiritual revelation must come without. So Owen goes on to say, Now whom should a man believe if not his own conscience, which, as it will not flatter him, so it intends not to affright him, but to speak the truth as a man requires? Conscience has two works in reference to sin. One, to condemn the act of sin. Another, to judge the person of the sinner, both with reference to the judgment of God. When forgiveness comes, it would sever and part these employments and take one of them out of the hand of conscience. It would divide the spoil with the strong one. It shall condemn the fact, or every sin, but it shall no more condemn the sinner, the person of the sinner, that shall be freed from its sentence. Your conscience labors with all its might to keep its whole dominion and to keep out the power of forgiveness from being enthroned in the soul. It will allow men to talk of forgiveness, to hear it preached, though they abuse it every day, but to receive it in its power, that stands up in direct opposition to its dominion. In the kingdom, says conscience, I will be greater than you, and in many, in the most, it keeps its possession and will not be deposed. So let me quote Ortland to continue this comparison. He says that our problem is that we have a wrong view of God. We only picture him 
as a judge, so we don't readily receive his forgiveness. He says, We need to understand that however long we have been walking with the Lord, whether we never read the whole Bible or have a PhD in it, we have a perverse resistance to this, to this view of God. Out of his heart flows mercy. Out of ours, reluctance to receive it. We are the cool and calculating ones. Not he. He is open-armed. We are stiff-armed. Our naturally decaffeinated views of God's heart might feel right because we're being stern with ourselves, not letting ourselves off the hook too easily. Such sternness feels appropriately morally serious. But this deflecting of God's yearning heart does not reflect Scripture's testimony about how God feels towards his own. God is, of course, morally serious, far more than we are. But the Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that his heart for us wavers according to our loveliness. God's heart confounds our intuitions of who he is. But I think the emphasis needs to be placed on not just the yearning of God's heart. There is a place for that. I know people have very harsh ideas of God, even as Christians. They only see him as a judge. But what seems to be really missing here is a revelation of what God has done for us in his Son. We need a real knowledge of redemption, of the covenant, of the substitutionary curse-bearing of Christ. So let me quote John Owen at this point. It is then no easy thing to make a discovery of forgiveness to a soul. When the work and employment, which conscience upon unquestionable grounds challenges to itself, lies in opposition to it, Hence is the soul's great desire to establish its own righteousness, whereby its natural principles may be preserved in their power. Let self-righteousness be enthroned, and natural conscience desires no more. It is satisfied and pacified. In other words, what he is saying here is, it's not a wrong interpretation of God that lies at the real root of why we don't receive forgiveness, it is because conscience and the moral law working together are so strong that the result is a natural desire for self-righteousness, for the soul to look outside of itself to Christ's righteousness takes a miracle of grace. And even in the Christian, sometimes God may desire for the mortification of the remains of sin, to have his child desire it, because then he doesn't deal with his sin lightly. He learns to prize that. He doesn't apply a promise like a band-aid over the wound. Now, I must say, I don't know the reason for it. I wrote to Jeremy Walker and commended him on his article. I was very thankful for it, and still am. But like other people that wrote to him, he never published what I had to write to him, and I think the reason why is even he was uncomfortable at this point that Owen gets to, which I quoted for him, and that is, in the mortification of sin, where it says, do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks it. Anytime there seems to be a hint of subjective experimental elements to the Christian life, we are so prone to become cautious because this subject has been abused. But you can't appreciate Owen unless you understand this subjective element 
of living the Christian life. And I'll explain that as I get into verse 5 in his treatise on the forgiveness of sin. But what does he mean by, do not speak peace to yourselves before God speaks it, but obey what God says to your soul. And he quotes Isaiah 57 verses 18 and 19. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruits of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And Owen says, if God disturbs your heart with guilt for sin, either because you are aware that it dwells in your heart, or because you committed it outwardly, be careful that you do not tell yourself to be at peace about it, before God tells you to have peace. Red flags. What does this mean? He says, rather listen to what God says to your soul. Without this next direction, your heart will surely be exposed to the deceitfulness of sin. This is an extremely important task. When men deceive their souls in this way, it is very sad. God gives us so many tender warnings to examine ourselves in order to prevent this great evil of telling ourselves to have peace without any spiritual warrant for so doing. Well, they would say our spiritual warrant is just that there is a promise. But Owen is talking about really having the promise applied to where you have a subjective receiving of it in your will and in your affections. He says to do this is to bless ourselves in opposition to God. I'm not trying mainly to outline the danger of it, but rather to help believers to prevent it and help them know when they are doing it. It is God's prerogative and sovereign choice to grant peace to whomever he pleases, in whatever degree he pleases. He has mercy on whom he will. Romans 9.18 And among all men he calls whom he pleases and sanctifies whom he pleases. Yet among all those whom he has called and justified whom he will save, he still reserves the right to speak peace to whomever he pleases, to the degree he pleases. Now, I want to quote Dana Ortland because he does talk about the feelings, but this is what he says. It is one thing as a child to be told your father loves you. You believe him. You take him at his word. But it is another thing unutterably more real to be swept up in his embrace, to feel the warmth, to hear his beating heart within his chest to instantly know the protective grip of his arms. It's one thing to hear that he loves you. It's another thing to feel his love. This is a glorious work of the Spirit. But here is where I think there is a problem, and he does quote Thomas Goodwin in this. The feeling that he is talking about is the Spirit revealing to you the heart of Christ towards sinners. The revelation that he is gentle and meek and lowly of heart, and that he is not an austere friend. But what John Owen is talking about is the subjective feeling of the Holy Spirit impressing the promise of the redemptive promise to the conscience of an awakened sinner to quiet it. Well, how will I know the difference? John Owen is saying when the experimental receiving of the promises within your affections or to your heart It will not only give you peace, but it will also cause you to want to live holily as a result. If the result is easily return to your sins, that can't be the result of the Spirit's work here. 
So, Owen says, when we go to Christ for healing, faith sees him uniquely as the one pierced. He sees Christ in several ways. Sometimes he sees his holiness, sometimes his power, sometimes his love, sometimes his favor with the Father. And when it goes to be healed, Jesus' stripes are in view, not the outward story or appearance of them, which is the approach that Catholics take, but the love, kindness, mystery, and design of the cross. When we look for peace, his chastisements must be in view. If this is done according to the mind of God and in the strength of the Spirit which is poured out on believers, it will bring about a hatred of the sin for which the healing is sought. This is what Ezekiel is talking about. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then what does he say? Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When God comes home to speak peace and establish a covenant over it, it fills the soul with shame for all the things that alienated it from him. When Paul speaks about how godly sorrow and repentance lead to salvation, one thing he says always accompanies those things which should never be repented of is revenge. Yea, what revenge? Second Corinthians 7.11 they regarded their sins with indignation and pursued them with revenge. When Job is convinced of his errors and desires to be healed, he cries, Now I abhor myself, Job 42, verse 6. Until he did so, he had no long-term peace. He could have bound up the wounds of his errors with the doctrine of free grace so excellently preached by Elihu, Job 33, verses 14 to 30. But he would have then have only grown skin over his wounds. He needed to arrive at a place of self-hatred to be truly healed. The same was true of those in Psalm 78, verses 33 to 35, who suffered great trouble and perplexity due to their sin. They address God in Christ, which is evident from the titles they give him. They call him their rock and their redeemer, two words which everywhere in scripture point at the Lord Christ. Yet I have no doubt they spoke peace to themselves. But was it well established and lasting? No. It dried up like the morning dew. God does not speak a single word of peace to their souls. So why did they not have peace? Because in their address to God, they flattered him. Their heart was not steadfast before him. They were not faithful to his covenant. They did not hate or give up the sin which they were comforting themselves about. Now in Ortlund's book, couple of words I cannot find, and I can do a quick search because I have the Kindle book, is the words abhor, loathe, or broken. So it appears to me that Ortland is putting such an emphasis upon your enjoyment and realization of your peace with God will come from a proper look of the heart of Christ, the attributes of Christ in that regard, the mercy of God. And so the sinner is passive. Even the professing believer, he is passive, he isn't active. But in a real forgiveness of sin, there is a, a fruit, a practice that inevitably results. So Owen says, suppose a man is bothered by his sin, it weighs upon his conscience. He has not walked according to the gospel. All is not well and right between God and his soul. So he considers what he should do. He has light and knows what path he must take and how a soul has been healed before. He remembers that the promises of God are the outward ways he can seek out healing of his conviction and quieting of his heart. So he goes to them. 
searches him diligently, and finds one or two passages whose literal expressions seem to apply directly to his situation. He says to himself, God speaks peace in this promise. I will spread this over the wounds of my heart and let it cover me. In this way, he brings a word of the promise to his ill feelings and rests in peace. This is another appearance on the mountain like those Elijah saw. The Lord is near, but the Lord is not in it. It is not the work of the Spirit that has brought him rest, who alone can convince of sin and righteousness and judgment, but the mere acts of the intelligent, rational soul. Now here a really important distinction and sanctification needs to be made, and that is putting to death the deeds of the body as a means to an end, not as a cause and effect. If it is a cause and effect, then our mortification of sin is what would merit God's smile upon us. But if it's a means to the end, these are the things that God has given us to persevere. But they are not legal because we're not dealing with justification. They are weapons because we are dealing with sanctification. So let me quote the misunderstanding of Ortland or the misemphasis at this point. He says, As the gospel sinks in more deeply over time, and we wade ever deeper into the heart of Christ, one of the first outer shells of our old life that the gospel pierces is the doing of works, listen, this is the key, unto approval. Well, we're not talking about what we do unto approval, but that which flows out of an evangelical obedience, part of our perseverance. Now, Ortland is warning us, properly so, of obedience out of a legal spirit, so we'll have to give him his due here. He quotes John Newton. He says he helps us to see the one reason we have a diminished awareness of the heart of Christ is that we are blindly operating out of a legal spirit. We don't just see, we don't see just how natural it is to operate out of a works righteousness. But this kills our sense of Christ's heart for us because this legal spirit filters out our sense of the heart according to how we are spiritually performing. Now, you may object, well, wasn't that just what you were saying about John Owen, that the reason we don't enjoy assurance of forgiveness is because by nature we are self-righteous because of how the conscience and the law work together? But Orland is putting his emphasis on this is keeping us from seeing this view of Christ as gentle and lowly. Owen's point is it is keeping us from embracing the promises of redemption because of what Christ has done for us. The emphasis is not our, our view of Christ as a meek and gentle and lowly shepherd, but our view of Christ as our substitute who paid the price that we couldn't pay, that we owed to a holy God. In a sense, this is the same error that John Piper gets into when he places the whole of our brokenness and our lack of delight in God. But what is left out is the legal requirements of the moral law. Now that they are fulfilled, the righteousness of the moral law may be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That legal element is being left out of these men's writings. They say that our peace should come from a proper view of Christ's heart towards us. But Owen is saying our peace should come from an understanding of Christ's substitutionary work for us. 
This empties us, this breaks us, this causes us to abhor and loathe ourselves. But he says, if anyone is attempting to steal peace when the Spirit is not leading him there, John Owen, God will quickly let him know it. We also have the promise that he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way, Psalm 25, verse 9. He will not let you continue to err. He will not allow your nakedness to be covered with fig leaves, but will take them away along with all the peace you have in hiding behind them. He will not let you settle in such pitiful shelters. You will quickly know that your wound is not healed. That is, you will know quickly whether or not you comfort yourself or God comforts you. In other words, this is something that God is doing to you by applying the promises to you so that you feel it, so that you embrace it, so it works upon your affections. So it is what God is doing within you, not a different knowledge of who God or Christ is in themselves and their gentleness, meekness, lowliness, or love to you or whatever. Now, the most important element that I am finally getting to is why would God have you wait, wait, seek earnestly for sense of this forgiveness? So let me quote him here. Waiting on the Lord is a grace and unique act of faith God calls for when under conviction. And this course of self-healing is commonly taken without such waiting. Of course, there are times when God comes upon the soul instantly, both wounding it and healing it in a single moment. I'm persuaded it was that way in the case of David when he cut off the hem of Saul's garment. But normally, God calls for waiting and watching like a servant attends to his master. The prophet Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Isaiah 8 verse 17. God would have his children lie at his door for a while after they have run from his house, not immediately rush in upon him. Rather, he means to take them by the hand and lead them in, when they are so ashamed that they would not dare to come to him. Self-healers who speak peace to themselves are frequently too hasty. They do not wait or listen for God to speak, but go forward immediately to be healed. Though this approach of speaking peace to yourself may help quiet your conscience and rational mind, it will not sweeten your heart with the rest and contentment that comes from grace. The answer it receives is much like the answer Elisha gave Naaman, go in peace. It gives his mind rest, but I doubt whether it sweetened his heart or gave him any joy in believing, other than the natural joy he had from being physically healed of his disease. Do not my words do good, says the Lord, Micah 2, verse 7. When God speaks, there is not only truth in his words that answer the convictions in our rational minds, but they also do good, bringing about that which is sweet, good, and desirable in the will and the affections. By such things, the soul returns to its rest, Psalm 116, verse 7. Worst of all, this effort to speak peace to yourself does not change your life. It does not correct the evil or cure the disease of sin. When God speaks peace, he guides and keeps the soul on a new course so that it does not return to foolishness. When we speak peace to ourselves, the heart is not redirected from the evil. On the contrary, it is on the surest path to bring the soul into a pattern of backsliding. If upon covering yourself with your own assurance of peace, you find yourself once again battling the same temptation and conviction, rather than utterly weaned from it, then it is very likely that you have been at work on your own soul. 
but Jesus Christ and his Spirit were not the ones doing it. Often, having done its work of healing, after a few days, our rational nature will be ready once again to reason away a new wounding. But when God speaks peace to us, there comes along with it so much sweetness, such an awareness of its love that the soul feels an obligation to turn away from sin. So John Owen has some excellent words on this in his exposition of Psalm 130 when he gets to verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Here, he describes his frame and spirit and the duty he applied himself to. So here is John Owen's outline of what these verses are talking about. We have one, the duty he performed, earnest, waiting, and expectation. Number two, the object of his waiting, God himself. Three, his supportment in that duty, the word of promise. Number four, the manner of his performance of it with earnestness and diligence, number two, with perseverance. Let us then now consider the words as they contain the frame and the working of a sin-entangled soul. Having been raised out of his depths by the discovery of forgiveness in God, as was before declared, yet not being immediately made partaker of that forgiveness, as to a comforting sense of it, he gathers up his soul from wandering from God and supports it from sinking under his present condition. It is, he says, Jehovah alone, with whom is forgiveness, that can relieve and do me good. His favor, his loving kindness, his communication of mercy and grace from this, is that which I stand in need of. On him, therefore, do I with all heedfulness attend. On him do I wait. My soul is filled with expectation from him, Surely he will come to me, he will come and refresh me, though he seems as yet to be afar off, and to leave me in these depths. Yet I have his word of promise to support and stay my soul, on which I will lean until I obtain the enjoyment of him, and his kindness which is better than life. And this is a frame of a sin-entangled soul who has really by faith discovered forgiveness in God, but is not yet made partaker of a comforting, refreshing sense of it. And we may represent it in the ensuing observations. 1. The first proper fruit of faith's discovery of forgiveness in God to a sin-distressed soul is waiting in patience and expectation. Number 2. The proper object of a sin-distressed soul's waiting and expecting is God himself, as reconciled in Christ. I have waited for Jehovah. Observation 3, the word of promise is the soul's great support in waiting for God. In your word do I hope. Number 4, sin-distressed souls wait for God with earnest intention of mind, diligence, and expectation from the redoubling of the expression. Number 5, continuance in waiting until God appears to the soul is necessary and prevailing. Necessary is that without which we cannot attain assistance and prevailing is that in which we shall never fail. Number six, establishment and waiting, when there is no present sense of forgiveness, yet gives the soul much secret rest and comfort. This observation arises from the influence that these verses have to those that follow. The psalmist, having attained thus far, can now look about him and begin to deal with others, and exhort them to an expectation of grace and mercy. 
And I'll leave off there, but there is a pattern here. In this case, so as in the view of God's awakening sinners and leading them to Christ, what is missing in uh, the discussions in our day is any kind of waiting. That's why the teaching of the law work prior to conversion, where somebody may be under awakening like Asa Hell Nettleton for 10 months, the case of David Brainerd, John Owen, who was under awakening for five years before he really had a settled assurance of salvation. In modern, even Reformed teaching, there is no place for waiting. In other words, God is going to grant his desire as soon as they come to the promise. So in the case of what I already talked about, the antecedents of regeneration or the new birth, properly called conviction of sin, and a case here where sometimes in order to empty somebody of their self-righteousness, but also to cause them to more prize God's mercy, sometimes God allows them to feel what we are in ourselves, and he doesn't heal us right away. He causes us to wait. That's an unknown term in our day. And so Archibald Alexander says, well, what purpose does that serve? Why is this sinner thus awakened? Their reply has been already partially given, but it may be remarked that God deals with man as an accountable moral agent. And before he rescues him from the ruin into which he has sunk, he would let him see and feel in some measure how wretched his condition is, how helpless he is in himself. How ineffectual are his most strenuous efforts to deliver himself from his sin and misery. He is therefore permitted to try his own wisdom and strength. And finally, God designs to lead him to the full acknowledgement of his own guilt and to justify the righteous judge who condemns him to everlasting torment. Dr. Derek Thomas said this may be the first generation in which the majority of professing Christians have not read Pilgrim's Progress. Well, my supposition as to why that is, is because they simply don't understand it. The fact that Christian is pointed to the wicked gate, and along the way he falls into the slew of despond, that's unknown language in our day. What is the slew of despond? Why is there a distance to the wicked gate? Why don't you just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved? Although that is his immediate duty, he isn't granted the ability by nature to be able to do so. So I'll close this particular podcast by quoting John Owen to amplify this a little bit more about this waiting. For the nature of it, something has been intimated, given light to it, in the opening words here used by the psalmist to express it by. But we may observe that these duties, as required of us, do not consist in any particular acting of the soul, but in the whole spiritual frame and deportment of it, in reference to the end aimed at, in and by them. And this waiting is here and elsewhere committed to us and which is comprehensive of the special duties of the soul in the case insisted on and described, comprehends these three things. Quietness, in opposition to haste and tumultuating of spirit. Number two, diligence, in opposition to spiritual sloth, despondency, and neglect of the means. Number three, expectation, in opposition to despair, distrust, and other proper immediate actings of unbelief. Men with a sense of the guilt of sin, having some discovery made to them of the rest, ease, and peace which they may obtain to their souls by forgiveness, are ready to catch greedily at it, and to make false and sound and due applications of it to themselves. They cannot bear the yoke that the Lord has put upon them, 
but grow impatient under it, and cry with Rachel, Give me children, or else I die. Anyway, they would obtain it. Now, as the first duty of such a soul is to apply itself to waiting, so the first entrance into waiting consists in the silence and quietness of heart and spirit. This is the soul's endeavor to keep itself humble, satisfied with the sovereign pleasure of God in its condition, and refusing all ways and means of rest and peace but what is guided and directed to the word and spirit. Secondly, as it is opposed unto hay, so it is unto tumultuating thoughts and vexatious disquietments. The soul is silent. Psalm 39.9, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth, because you did it. He redoubles the expression in which he sets out his endeavor to quiet and still his soul in the will of God. In the condition discoursed of, the soul is apt to have many tumultuating thoughts or a multitude of perplexing thoughts, or no use or advantage to it. How they are to be watched against and rejected was before declared in our general rules. This quietness and waiting will prevent them, and this is the first thing in the duty prescribed. Number two, diligence and opposition to spiritual sloth is included in it also. Diligence is the activity of the mind and the regular use of means for the pursuit of any end proposed. The end aimed at by the soul is a comforting, refreshing interest in that forgiveness that is with God for the attaining of it. There are a number of means instituted and blessed of God. A neglect of them through regardlessness or sloth will certainly disappoint the soul from attaining that end. Well, thank you. We hope that this podcast has been helpful for you. For more narrations, go to puritanaudiobooks.com.